Here at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ed Calstry, and I'm here with the full podcast team today. So I'm going to get them all to introduce themselves one by one so they don't uh, interrupt each other on Zoom, as of course we're still having to record this, being that it's the COVID pandemic year. Um, So B Costa Gomez, B, how are you? Hi. Hi, everyone. I'm I'm doing fine. Hi, Ed. And all the other co-hosts that will say hi in a second. Uh, don't, I don't want to discriminate everyone. No, it's, everything <laughs> is fine. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad. I thought we'd um, start today by giving ourselves a little bit of an introduction. Um, B, who are you and how did you end up working on the Turing podcast? Yes, give me an existential crisis right before the rest of the podcast. <laughs> Um, so I'm a PhD student at the University of Manchester and I was an enrichment student of the Turing from 29, in 2019 that got extended, um, until September because there was a pandemic, um, newsflash. And, and we, we roped you into the podcast. That's what yes. happened. Um, I was invited to do, to, to be a guest, uh, on one of the first episodes. I think it's like single digit episode and, um, then I basically got cornered into staying and help send help. I'm kidding. No, I was invited to stay as a co-host and it's been great. Right. Cool. Um, Joe, Joe Dungate, how are you? Sorry. I'm saying everyone's I'm saying everyone's full names just so that for the audience, for the audience's benefit. But how, how are you doing, Joe? Yeah. All good. All good with me. How did you end up being roped into the Turing podcast? That's a very good question. I'm still asking myself that. Um, <laughs> so I'm the communications officer at the cheering. Um, and yeah, thought it seemed like a fun thing to get involved in and have done a few co-hosting episodes since. Um, still here, which I think is a good sign. That is a good sign. Yeah. I'm glad you're enjoying it. You haven't <laughs> left us yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and introducing our, our latest member of the team, uh, Rachel Winstanley. Uh, Rachel, how are you? I'm good, thanks. What's yeah. your background? What brought you to the, the Alan Turing Institute? Uh, so I'm on the uh, Digital Fast Stream, which is the government graduate scheme, and I'm on secondment to the Turing for six months and thought, why not get involved in the podcast? I think various other Fast Streamers have been at the Turing Institute over the last year and have done various bits of the podcast. I think it's kind of becoming a bit of a tradition that now we just do something. <laughs> we definitely should make it a tradition. That's That's a good point, actually. Um, just to clarify, you're, you're a civil servant, right? Yes. <laughs> so it, it's, um, it, it's lucky for you that, um, you're one of the people who gets to work here and instead of working on either COVID or Brexit related stuff at the moment, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. It's quite, um, 
I think I have a very relaxing six months compared to everyone else. But um, yeah, I've only been in government for just over a year. And so far we've had an election, Brexit and COVID. Right. And then now we're on Brexit <laughs> again. So it's been a very dramatic it first all comes back around. 18 months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Holy Trinity. Unholy Trinity. <laughs> all right. We're going to um, start this Wait, episode. Ed, what about you? That's a good point. I've, I failed to introduce myself. Um, I, yeah, I'm Ed Calstry and I worked at the Alan Turing Institute for a couple of years as a uh, research data scientist. And I guess, I guess I'm going to, you know, make this big claim. It was my idea to set up the podcast for the Institute. And Ooh. yeah, I know, bold claim. But fortunately, others also thought it was a good idea and allowed me to do it. So I'm obviously using this as a platform to, you know, promote myself. <laughs> no it's uh it, it's it's been fun and um yeah i'm enjoying doing the podcast ed the influencer that's what we have <laughs> an influencer yeah that's that's what i'm aspiring to be um <laughs> public intellectual <laughs> all right um well now that i've introduced myself and we've all introduced ourselves um let's get on with today's episode and we're going to start with as we did last week for the very first time in the first episode of series two, uh, spinning Alan Turing's wheel of fun <laughs> and Alan Turing's wheel of fun. If, if people who didn't listen to the first episode, what it's going to do is select a game for us to play an AI related game. So let's spin the wheel. And the game that's been selected today is Have AI Got News For You? Mm. Exciting. Are you all Yay! excited to play? Yay! Yeah, okay. That's what I wanted. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you canned laughter. <laughs> <laughs> so the way this game's going to work, it, it works uh, like part of the TV show, which is where you uh they basically have to complete the headline so i've got a selection of ai related headlines and i'm basically going to read them out for you and you 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 guys are going to have to try and fill in the blanks um i think this is going to be a team effort um but we'll see how this goes so the first headline is um and this is a headline from new scientist google's ai can keep blank flying for over 300 days in a row so fill in the blanks. Google's AI can keep blank flying for over 300 days in a row. Give us your best guesses. Okay. We need to think about things that fly. So <laughs> I don't know. I thought I thought it was a drone. My first thought was a drone. It's mm. a good guess, yeah. Drone. Aeroplane. Mhm. You're in the you're in the right ballpark guessing that it's something that can fly given that it's <laughs> 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 wow, yes. we really narrowed that one down. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'm going to push you in the direction of something that requires uh, less input to fly. Um, so it does it a bit more of, of its own accord. Although I suppose in this case it's using an AI to help it. But <laughs> Okay, so... Ooh, maybe they, the... It's Google, right? So the weather balloons that they had, that would be that's, nice. That's a very good guess. And I think I'm going to give you the point for that, B, because Woo! the answer is loon balloons. Uh, AI can keep loon balloons 
flying for over 300 days in a row. Um, and loon balloons are apparently a network of stratospheric balloons designed to bring internet co- connectivity to rural and remote communities worldwide. So, well done, B. Okay, I, I, after having said that uh, it was a group effort, I'm now going to change my mind and say, introduce a bit of competition here and, and give the, <laughs> the first point to B. So, ah. Uh. No, yeah. we, we all get a point. This is, this is, we have equality here. We all no, get I, a point. I, I, I want to hear some guesses from, from Rachel and Joe on the next one. So, so let's go for it. Okay. Okay. So the next, uh, so the next article is from the Daily Mail and the, well, this is a three part one. So there's three blanks in this one. And the headline is AI will blank scientists rather than blank blank says expert. I'll read it again. AI will blank scientists rather than blank blank says expert oh you know what this one does ring a bell and i cannot remember it um is it will help scientists rather than replace them uh rachel i'm absolutely going to give you the point for that it's not the exact wording but the answer is ai will empower scientists Mm. rather than replacement them says expert and i was hoping one of the blanks would be a curse word just yeah <laughs> i mean that went through my brain i just went probably not going to say that word no, I, i'm afraid this is a this is a family friendly podcast so yeah um, <laughs> there, are, there are no curse words um so that that story is all about the uh the recent uh deep mind fold uh, protein folding story which in fact we'll be hearing more about later in this episode but um for, for now let's go to the next uh headline to guess so Headline number three, this is from the Times. German university fears AI takeover could blank. German university fears AI takeover could blank. Rule the world. That's my <laughs> that's my guess. Rule the world, okay. Stop progress. Okay. <laughs> Joe, you're, I, I'm not quite going to give you that, but you're definitely in the right ballpark there. Um, um, takeover? So I, no, that's that. You know, that's that's further away. <laughs> uh, so, colder. so I, I, I tell you what. I tell you what. I should have said is that it is. It is two words actually. So it's Ger- It's uh, German university fears AI takeover could blank blank. I should know this. I do a news roundup every week. Stop learning. Stop uh, learning. No, that's that's no. yeah, that's also called advanced progress. It's it's pretty much the opposite of what you just said. Stop progress. Did Stop I just already progress. say that? I think I already yeah. said yeah. that. Just repeat <laughs> it and it will I, be right. <laughs> I, I, I think Forget I'm gonna, I think I'm going to give the point to Joe because that's definitely closest. And Ooh. the the answer is German university fears AI takeover could narrow mission. Uh yeah. yeah. I I I was being a bit harsh trying to get the exact wording there cuz that that was never going to happen was it so so that that story was Jacobs University in Germany and academics have been left shocked by plans for it to be turned into an AI institute by software giants um I mean AI institute sounds pretty good because that's what we are but anyway well uh, must have been shocking what they heard anyway um okay on to number 4 uh this is from the independent Cambridge University launches master's degree in blank use of AI. Ethical. Um, ethical was a good guess. Yeah, yeah. I was going to go for humane or ethical. Mm, okay. Well, in that case, I'm probably going to give you all a point because 
that's uh, that's pretty much right. The answer was responsible. So Cambridge University launches master's degree in responsible use of AI. Um, and that's a qualification designed for tech professionals, which will teach them how to make the, sure their products do no harm. Okay, so in that case, it's definitely all to play for. It's level playing field <laughs> here. And this is the final headline, so so pay attention. <laughs> so this one's this one's also from the Times, uh, and this is DeepMind's AI could help save blank as well as the human race. DeepMind's AI could help save blank as well as the human race. Is blank just one word? It, it is indeed one word. I'm going to read it again because. I, I may have missed out one slight connecting word there. <laughs> Deep, DeepMind's AI could help save the blank as well as the human race. World, Deep- planet, environment. <laughs> yeah, I think I think in fairness, I'm going to have to give it to all of you. The, the answer was was planet. So well done. <laughs> um, and again, this is another story about one of the topics we're going to be talking about on the podcast today which is um, DeepMind's success in the Cas protein folding challenge. So stay tuned to hear more about that. But um, for now, um, thanks to my podcast hosts for participating in Alan Turing's Wheel of Fun. Um, How do we think that went today? Uh, thank you for for organizing the the topics for us. And I think think it was quite nice. Maybe we should make it a competition next time. Yeah. 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 Fight it out. But it sort of was. You, you all. It was a. It was a. It was a draw today. So, so well done, everyone. Imagine. I don't like drawing. Sounds. I like winning. <laughs> yeah, I think wow. I perform better when there's a competition. That's fight, fighting talk. Okay. Well, well, we'll have to ramp it up for the next episode then, and in, include a slightly more competitive edge in whichever game that the wheel of fun chooses for us. <laughs> um, on that note, um, let's go to the interview. Hello everyone, Um, today we're joined by Professor Tim Hubbard, who is the head of the Department of Medical and Molecular Genetics at King's College London, and Associate Director of Health Data Research UK in London, as well as being the Head of Genome Analysis at Genomics England. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, nice to be here. Yeah, well, welcome, and um, thank you so much for joining us. I know that this is a bit out of your <laughs> usual comfort zone, but can we start? Uh, can you can we start by getting you to give us a bit of your, you know, potted bio, so that people listening to us can know who you are? Like, we'll talk a bit later about what's going on on Do Not Mix England and HDR UK, which is Health Data Research UK, but. What was your involvement in the original Human Genome Project and what brought you to where you are today? So I was actually a structural biologist um, for quite a few years, um, working on prediction problems and structural databases. And But I was looking for a group leader position and I was in Cambridge and Sanger Institute was, in, was um, advertising. And, you know, so I, I got recruited and they said, but maybe you'd like this slightly more senior position, um, and it would just involve looking after the analysis of the human genome, and it won't take up any of your time. And I never did structural biology ever since since then. 
I was going to say it's famous last words. Exactly. <laughs> that was 97. Um, and of course, that was just before things really got scaled up. Um, and so, you know, so we sequenced the whole, we sequenced a third of the human genome at Sanger, um, had the draft sequence in 2000, publication in 2001. And then a lot of work on analysis and particularly the GenCode project, which is working out where all the human genes are. And that project's still going on at the European Bioinformatics Institute. It moved from Sanger. Um, and is, is, it is the reference gene set pretty much worldwide. It's a, it, it was a big project that I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard of, at least in passing the human genome project. Um, and I, I was going to ask you, but that you did mention how long it was 2000, right? I that's mean, 2000 yeah yeah uh, so it's it, it's a long time ago for someone like me but <laughs> i won't i won't i won't embarrass uh you or or uh or uh in, or any of our older listeners but yeah it seems like a long time ago the world of biology has changed a lot since then i'd say um b and i have both although we're at turing um it's an you know ai and data science institute we're both biologists by training as well so we're we're very familiar with all of that um but what I mean, before we dive into some of the other stuff that you've been working on real, more recently, um, yeah, can you just like expand a bit? Like, what was the what was the purpose of the Human Genome Project, and how did it pave the way for the, the modern modern world of biology we're in now? So that I mean, the, this is really genomics that every organism has a genome, and that's essentially the blueprint of how that organism is put together. It's DNA. It contains, you know, the, the genes, and those are read and turned into proteins, and you know, manufacture everything in the cell. Um, it was the scale up of sequencing that enabled us to start sequencing whole genomes, um, progressively larger and larger ones, um, culminating in the human genome in 2000. But actually, there was another change which happened a few years after that, which was the change in sequencing technology, because the first human genome was very, very expensive. And in fact, at the time, we didn't think we'd be able to sequence that many genome types of genomes because of the cost. Then next generation sequencing came along. Um, this is basically massively parallel. Um, another technology that was developed in the UK, in Cambridge, that was bought by Illumina in the States. Um, but essentially, the price dropped a million fold. And the speed, you know, you had thousands of people working around the world sequencing the first human genome. It's now a run on a single machine for about 27 hours to sequence your genome, any individual's genome. And so that's meant not only can we start sequencing lots of humans and in the health service, and that's what Genomics England's doing, but you can also sequence anything. I mean, any organism, the Sanger Institute's trying to sequence, you know, all of life in the UK. Um, different organisms. And you can do investigations at the level of what's going on in this cell right now, individual single cell sequencing, simply because it's just so cheap to do, to, to sequence everything in a particular sample. So that's what's really changed things. Actually, it's the price drop. And that's led to big, big data biology, really. I was just going to add that it was not just uh, biology that that got changed. We it, it affected a lot of um, people's lives and things. By, for example, um, 
analysis, DNA analysis of people that have committed crimes and things in comparison. And so that has allowed, you know, innocent people from being, you know, released and or con- and or convicted and stuff. So just just a, an idea of how impactful. Yeah. So like um, with the with the sequencing, there was a possibility to compare, and so you you start having a lot more. Right. Uh, you also have like yeah, the rapid sequences nowadays. You know, with um, sequencing like the the COVID virus. Uh, uh, g- genome and the you know it was a big thing in in e- Ebola as well the outbreak um so you know the technology's come a long way and it puts Moore's law if for people for listeners who are familiar with that it puts it to shame really because i think Moore's law is um transistor size uh, or halves every yeah, computing so, power i think com- computing computing yeah. power goes up every unit well it's exponential but the the in, doubles in every eighteen months, roughly, I think was the number. But this Fantastic. is way, Keep... way above exactly. this. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, basically, I think as a technology, it's the biggest change, you know, drop in cost mm. and speed up that of any technology. Yeah. You've you've made the point that I was trying to make and better than than I would have done. So so thanks, <laughs> so thanks for that. I mean, I so I was yeah biology undergraduate about ten years ago and and. The next generation sequencing was just becoming a big thing then, I think. Um, but yeah, we're, we're in a different world now. Um, whilst we're on the topic of, um, structural biology and the, the developments that have, that have been made, there's a, there's a really big news topic that I think we need to discuss, which is, um, the recent, uh, breakthrough of AlphaFold, uh, DeepMind's solution to the protein structure prediction challenge. So, Tim, can you tell us a bit why this particular challenge has been considered so important to solve and why DeepMind's result has been in the news in the last few weeks? So this is what I was working on before I got into genomics, really. And trying to, the, you know, a gene is a protein, gene codes for a protein. Um, it's a sequence, a linear sequence of amino acids. We've known how to convert between base 4, which is the genome, to base 20, which is 20 amino acids making up protein sequences. And we've known for 50 years that these strings fold themselves up into a, a unique three-dimensional shape depending on their sequence. So you look at that and you think, well, you, you should be able to work out how that happens, what the shape should be, but it's turned out to be very difficult. So difficult, in fact, that there's been a competition running every two years for the last 25 years called CASP, which basically evaluates methods in a blind test, blind test setting. And yeah, I was an organizer, one of the organizers for that for the first 10 years, pretty much. Um, and so there's been progressive progress, but it was certainly far from solved until this year. So DeepMind, started competing the previous CASP in 2018, and they beat everybody else, but they certainly didn't solve the problem. You, know, you were getting rough structures. Um, but this time round, they've produced most of their predictions are almost indistinguishable from experiments. So, you know, good enough, I mean, so good that you can use them for investigating drug interactions, that kind of thing. So, 
there are you know there's still some corner cases in this um but rather like having the first human genome i think we can end up having the first structural proteome where we've got all the structures of um the human genome and and any other organism rather than just the few we have right now if I mean, it's probably around, I don't know, I looked it up, it's, it's about 17, 18% of the human genome have, of the sequences of proteins that actually have a structure right now. And right, that's right. despite massive investments around the world doing large scale structure determination. You know, structure determination is very difficult. It takes years sometimes, it takes, you know, trying to find a way of crystallizing, purifying the protein various other techniques more recently. There are very large structures, which are even more difficult. Um, so this looks like you'll be able to do it systematically. So it's, it's really a big, big event. And I think you can look at, you know, you, people look for, you know, we have the human genome. You can, you know, now we have the blueprint. Well, actually, we didn't quite have the blueprint. We had the blueprint, but it was encrypted because you couldn't decode what these proteins look like because the shape they have determines what they do. And so if you can't get the shape, you can't tell what they're doing. You can't tell which they, which other proteins they interact with. Essentially, you can't build a digital model of how a cell works. And I think by having this, this new set of this translation, it's a bit like a Rosetta stone. Um, then you can potentially build on that. You can potentially work out all the interactions, build a digital cell at the mechanistic level. And that will massively advance biology as a whole. Thank you for, for answering. Just, um, for the next question, actually, it was inspired because, as Ed mentioned, we, we, uh, we have a biological background, but I actually still work in a biology group. And when this came out, I actually talked to my group. And so this is questions based, you know, not trying not to go too deep into the biology and try not to be too sciencey, but I couldn't let, you know, the opportunity pass without passing along the, <laughs> the questions. Um, but the, but I, what I guess biologists would like to know is how sure can we be that alpha folds predictions for the structure of a protein that hasn't already been verified experimentally is really correct. And do you think that the, the competition has a sufficiently diverse set of proteins, protein structures so that the validation can be actually, um, expanded and generalized? So one of the things, so this business about the reliability of a prediction is important. And certainly in the past, I mean, you know, I kind of used to summarize this as well. People can predict, you know, roughly the right fold, maybe 50, 60% of the time. The problem is they didn't know which 50% were right. This isn't true this time around. Here, the AI, um, you know, the, the, the network, not only does it produce a three-dimensional structure at very high resolution, it produces a confidence for every residue in the structure. And so, you know, you get an indication of where it's confident. I mean, basically it's confident, but if it's not confident, then you get a low score. And so, you know, the confidence and the, you know, the, the CASP competition it, these days is around a hundred targets. So it's pretty diverse, um, in terms of, and it's not just small proteins. I mean, there's some very big proteins in CASP 14. So 
I think it's pretty universal. It doesn't seem to have areas that it can't address. I mean, there are always going to be corner cases. There are some, you know, some proteins where it's clear that there are chaperones involved in folding certain situations. We don't really understand what the boundaries of that is. So there will be biological exceptions, I'm sure. And there are things like some of the, some proteins, some parts of proteins are, um, disordered. They don't seem to have a structure. Now, I think the assumption is that quite a lot of those cases, there's some sort of induced structure when they interact with something else. Now, I'm guessing that this AI algorithm can probably, you know, with some tweaks and uh, evolution, will be able to address that sort of thing too. But I think the other thing to say is that this is an algorithm they've developed, but DeepMind themselves say, you know, this is a proof of what you can do with AI. And Demis, you know, the CEO of, of um, Deep, DeepMind said in a talk at the CAST meeting last week, he didn't think this was necessarily the only way of solving the folding problem with AI. So there's, you know, there's a whole community there. From two years ago, they started using different AI methods. They did better than this time around that DeepMind did two years ago. So I think that, that now there's a, Basically, the community has been pointed in the right direction, and there's going to be evolution of techniques. Presumably, the the competition is ongoing, and there'll be a, another entry from DeepMind and others next year, I imagine. Yep, I think that's correct. And and there's still areas, you know, for example, RNA structure is we need to know these. I mean, RNA in some ways it's a simpler problem or should be, but then there's modifications of RNA. It's not that straightforward. Um, we're going to need to know all these molecules if we're going to fit all these pieces together to make up an entire cell. And you, if you think of COVID, for example, it's a small genome, but it's got a small number of kind of little adapter molecules. And there was some part of the CASP competition was predicting those. And where do they fit? Where do they kind of interfere with different parts of the cellular system? You know, they're exactly where they fit with, you know, that's a potential thing to do if you can work out the interactions. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting you, you mentioned the potential application to COVID-related stuff. I think that's what's missing from a lot of the way the media is reporting the story at the moment is that it's like, wow, this amazing breakthrough, quite difficult thing to explain to the public why protein folding is an interesting or important topic. But uh, I think the, the key thing to focus on is what are the potential applications of this? So just, just to recap, so as we, as we described at the beginning, like we've been in this sort of era of genomics for the last 20 years since the human genome projects. Nowadays, it's really easy and cheap to sequence genes, which is just lengths of DNA. But as you described, that's only really the encrypted blueprint for what's really going on in the cell, which is all of the proteins. And so now from those DNA sequences, we already can work out the protein sequence very easily, but we can't work out very easily the uh, protein structure without experimentally um, looking at it with X-ray crystallography. And that's where this competition's come in to um, find a computational way of doing that. Um, and the new story there, therefore, is that DeepMind have found a really good computational or, in scare quotes, AI way of doing that. Um but and that sounds amazing but what are the what are the potential benefits of that how how could it revolutionize biology further 
So I think that probably takes me to genomics England, um, because there the whole idea is whole genome sequencing's got really cheap, and it's actually realistically to use it as part of clinical care. Now, what can you do with that? Problem is, we don't understand the genome very well, partly because of this problem of protein folding. But there is a subset of conditions, rare diseases and cancers, where you're looking for a single change in the case of rare disease that might explain a condition. And so Genomics England, which did the 100,000 Genomes Project in the NHS and is now becoming a permanent entity because um, it's morphing into the genome medicine service as now. So there will be um, half a million people sequenced for clinical care in the next five years. Um, but it's targeted on certain conditions that it's not being, people are not being sequenced to predict what's wrong with them. It's the case of if you are ill with one of these conditions, then, and we haven't got a diagnosis for you, then you're eligible to be sequenced because there's more chance of us getting a diagnosis. Now, still, after doing a whole genome, we still can't interpret most of those cases. So there's a huge number where, you know, there's basically every genome has around 4 million differences out of 3 billion. Which of those 4 million explains the condition? Once you start once you start having this protein set, you can start mapping those variations onto all those protein structures. And that's likely to improve our ability to interpret what might be causing the condition, particularly as you start building models where you have all the proteins and you know how they all interact with each other. So that's the difference. It's going to improve a kind of mechanistic explanation of why this mutation actually is having an effect on this person and maybe not in this other person who's got some other mutations around um, that, uh, you know, maybe are comp com compensating. So this is, this is like, this is so interesting. I was just thinking that um, because there are so many diseases that are directly related to protein misfolding or to protein inter interactions, um, that this can be a way of studying those diseases in a, um, a simpler way. Like, if you can, if you can, uh, produce the structure, then you, I guess you can simulate, um, all of the, the things that can happen and how does that influence the folding, I suppose. Yes. Uh, I mean, the, there was a attempt to have a project, a big sort of massive EU project called, um, you know, digital twins. Um, the idea that we might get to a point where we have a digital version of ourselves and that's where you do your analysis to interpret what, you know, might be the best treatment for that individual in a much more complicated way than we do at the moment. And it depends on us having much better understanding of how biological systems work. But I think that the sort of, you know, the, the block to that has been removed now. And we can now make a, you know, it's a potential jump. It was a jump having the human genome. It was a huge jump being able to collect data with next generation sequencing. This is unblocking another bit of science that was, you know, limiting what we could do. And of course, it, it takes us into a big data world with AI, where it's clear that AI can do things just as it can play better chess and better go can also do things that, in this case, where we really had not solved this problem.
despite the collective effort of scientists around the world for 50 years? Well, well, I must say that up until now, I mean, it depends what you what, what counts as AI, but certainly a lot of people in the public will have seen things that, that Google and by extension DeepMind are doing as, you know, that's what AI is at the moment. And the examples up until now had been pretty cool, but they'd been games, you know, <laughs> so they hadn't been real world problems. They'd been, you know, making a chess AI, making a, a Go AI, making a Starcraft AI. Those are the examples that I've heard of. Um, but what do you mean that's not a real problem? <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, no, fair enough. These are, these are important things to solve. Well, actually, you could argue. I mean, you know, they're taking the fun out of it, whereas <laughs> whereas protein folding, like people don't want to do that. They just want to get on and solve the disease, right? So, <laughs> well, actually, there has been a game around protein folding where people have been playing games trying to try, which in fact Demis said inspired him partly around. Um, you know, developing, getting interested in this. And also, he said also the fact that there was a, a framework for testing who's, who's been, who's made progress was a key thing as well. I mean, the CAST competition, this idea of having an evaluation framework, it's kind of part of reproducible science. You know, how do you establish, how do you measure if algorithms are working and assess them against each other? It's quite a big effort, actually. I mean, it's had a lot of funding from the NIH as a, around 60,000 predictions every cast every two years. And, of course, they all have to be evaluated. So quite a large industrial process handling the predictions. Well, when you say evaluated, so at the moment, the 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 training data, I suppose, that the AI is using is the um, protein structures that have already been evaluated by these manual methods of X-ray crystallography or whatever else they use. Um, but what well, I guess one of the things we, we, we sort of picked up on earlier, which you've just highlighted there is, is there like, even if, even if the software version, even if DeepMind's AI can now predict a protein structure to, you know, a high likelihood of being correct, it's still going to have to be experimentally verified in any sort of use case, like if it goes into a medicine or something. Well, I don't think so. I think we're going to get to a point where we're, I mean, you know, it's clear proteins fold by themselves. It's clear that there's, um, you know, there's something in the chemistry and physics of the molecules that cause that, allow that to happen. And it's not perfectly pure, the method they have right now, because it does rely on what's called multiple sequence alignments to some extent. It's not quite, I mean, this only was, announced last week, so we haven't got some of the details of the algorithm. But a multiple sequence alignment, you know, it's not just the sequence in that particular cell, it's other related sequence in other organisms. So, of course, bringing that extra information in, in some ways you're cheating, you're using information that wasn't accessible to the actual process that's happening as the thing folds. But I'm pretty sure we'll get to the point where we can um, make a prediction as good from the individual sequence as well it's just a question of time and once you can do that then you can start interpreting any variant in that sequence and and work out if it's going to stop the folding for example and of course you know there's folding we know that you know things like dementia alzheimer's they're linked they seem to be linked to misfolded proteins so these you know there's there's you know there's applications everywhere but you know you can point to different um you know, 
medical problems, biological problems where folding is a particular issue. So that, yeah, that's interesting that there are, yeah, there are clearly diseases which are known to be protein misfolding problems and so forth. Understanding how protein folding actually works is definitely going to give people ideas on on how to solve those problems. Um, I, I was really interested by some by uh, a phrase you used earlier, which I think you were talking about some EU projects. Um, you used the words digital twins, and and in the, at the Alan Turing Institute, we've got a lot of projects which are go under that that name. But they te- but rather than being biology related, they're engineering related uh, problems. So we, we had one podcast episode earlier talking about one of these, and it was. Um, creating a digital twin of like a, a steel bridge. Um, so, and the, you know, the digital twin was the computational, um, you know, version of it, basically a, a, a computer model. Um, but it was related to the real one because it had, you know, um, input from the sensors on the real physical bridge. But what it sounded like he was saying is that something almost comparable for that is envisioned um, when we get further down the line of really understanding how different proteins interact in cells by building a, a digital twin of a of a real person or a real cell. Um, so is is that something that you, you, you see as being like a milestone that will be reached in the next decade or something? Or I think it depends on what level you do it at. Um, yeah. You know, we remember a human being is about thirty seven trillion cells. Right. All of those cells you know, we don't know how many cell types there are. Um, we've only really, we've only really understood how important epigenetics is in the last, what, 10, 15 years. Um, you know, the ENCODE project was something that came after the human genome project in trying, trying to annotate the genome and seeing how, you know, the DNA isn't any different, but the modifications of the wrapping in the cell packaging are different. And the, I mean, there are modifications and methylation, uh, and those kind of fix a cell, cell types properties. So, you know, a blood cell knows it's a blood cell and keeps on making more blood cells that are the same without having this expensive regulation structure. Um, so we're a long way off building a model which can even model at the sort of molecular metal, even simple things. I mean, we can't, we can't actually work out how the ge- where the genes are directly. Um, we do that by, by collecting external data and mapping it onto the genome because we can't build a system of all the proteins that are involved in the process of, of, you know, finding the start of a gene and splicing and everything else. Those are big, big machinery. And we haven't been able to put that together, but there's a chance we could, we can start on that process now. So I think some of the cellular systems, we're going to start being able to build really uh, molecular models. And a lot of understanding will come out of that because a lot of diseases are molecular defects. That, that's really interesting. I, I just want to make a point for our potentially non scientist listeners that, um, what we're always doing in science is creating models. So the point you made about the level of detail is really important because we can't have the maximum level of detail, which is to the atomic or subatomic level and, you know, understand everything because that would be simulating the entire universe and that, and that's far too hard, (laughs) possibly maybe impossible. Um, but 
the point is you, you don't have to have a, a model that's at that level of granularity, that detailed to have interesting and informative insights into how the real world actually works. And in this case, how, you know, people's cells actually work in a way that's informative to medicine. And so that really takes you to the kind of health data research UK world where, you know, humans are very complicated. We have a large number of cohorts, research cohorts, where people have volunteered to, you know, be examined, have their data collected. But that probably is not enough data. So what you'd ideally like to do is to do that over whole health systems. Um, look at all, because, you know, volunteers, that's going to be a certain subset of people that are prepared to volunteer rather than everybody in the population. The problem then, of course, is privacy of data because volunteers are one thing. Um, the whole population, you know, they're concerned about their data. And we've seen that with various issues in the UK around data privacy. And so actually the, one of the things at HDR UK is can you construct a framework to make it possible, easier for researchers to discover what data sets there are and to securely run algorithms on that data in what we're calling trusted research environments where data doesn't move, it stays there. Um, and you bring the algorithms to the data. Um, and the only thing that goes out are summaries, which aren't identifiable to anybody, but, are you know, research results. And so you have to do that for genomics because there's nothing you can do to anonymize a genome, a genome, you know, and you need all, you need every bit of information to try and interpret it. So genomics England has built such a thing. And that's what we use for doing research analysis on top of all those genomes, partly to try and explain the ones that we didn't get interpretations for, but also to enhance understanding. And there's around a thousand researchers actively logging into that system, running our algorithms inside this secure setting. But the, the plan with Health Data Research UK is to do that much more generally across health records data, um, you know, population health data, there's projects at various sort of levels, but there's something called the Health Data Research Alliance, which is trying to bring all of those data owners at least into a common framework so you can start doing analysis in these different environments and, you know, aggregate the results together. You don't move any of the data itself. You, you try and set up a system where you can federate between trusted environments. And there's been engagement with public and patients around that. And it seems people are much more relaxed if there's proper oversight, if there's patient representation involved in the um, review of projects that are carried out and there's transparency. It says a lot about our our society if there's not a lot of people volunteering their DNA for um, for science, but then they have like, ooh, am I 1% in any <laughs> of any ancestors? So that does say that... <laughs> Maybe to make it as a test. Say, volunteer and we'll tell you if you are, I don't know, 10% hamster. You're suggesting <laughs> that people are more willing to give up their DNA to private companies who will give them a dodgy readout of what race yes. or ethnicity they are compared to an NHS-related uh, health data project. Is that, is exactly. that what you're suggesting? <laughs> that's that's it. I'm just I'm just saying, right? We've all we all know someone that would much quicker go for 
<laughs> the, oh, I'm going to see if I'm, you know, 10% rabbit than, than if I, it, or, or help research. So. <laughs> well, uh, um, that is an interesting point. I mean, that there obviously are a lot of, um, valid, like, privacy concerns around, um, sharing patient data, whether it's on, you know, illnesses that people have had, NHS hospital data, or of course, um, genomics, genetic data. Um, um, and you were just talking a bit there about Health Data Research UK. Um, so I don't know if, yeah, can you tell us any more about, um, what's going on? You mentioned the, um, the, the, the specific kind of research, com- research competing environment, environments that are allowing for this kind of, um, privacy preserving research to take place. My, my understanding is that what this kind of thing allows you to do is it allows scientists to essentially work on this kind of, um, sensitive personal medical data and do whatever, do whatever like cool science they want to do on it. But the point is it's, it's in a kind of computing environment that's not exposed to the internet. It can't be hacked into. It can't be, you know, the people involved in it can't easily, you know, share stuff out of it. Um, what are the other th- sorts of things that that enable that kind of research to, to take place safely? So, I mean, there are other things about, firstly, the data, even if it's in the secure environment, is all de-identified. So you can't work out automatically who somebody is. And because you control who can log in, they've all had to sign legal agreements saying they're not going to try and re-identify anybody. And some issues where data has been, um, anonymized data has been outside and some people have tried to re-identify. Normally you need external data for that. So by controlling data that goes in as well, you put additional controls on what happens. And then of course you also have oversight. People have to propose what projects they're going to do. So those have to be viewed and vetted by, um, access control committees too. So there's quite a lot of wrapping around researchers. So a lot of it's around conf- confidence and transparency. So, part, you know, Genomics England has a large participant panel who, you know, are updated about what's going on and are on these committees. And there's lay summaries of the projects that are being carried out um, inside the environment, both academic ones and company ones as well, because companies can do exactly the same thing. They can come and do analytics to look for targets for new drugs, for example, but they follow exactly the same rules. They can't take the data away. They can only take export summaries. Uh, is that kind of approach, both in terms of the the software that enables it and the, the rules that you mentioned, is that something that sort of Health Data Research UK is, is pioneering? And is it going, is it become, going to become, I, I can imagine it's going to become much more of a thing, much more frequently a used approach as we enter an even bigger world of of health data, whether it's proteomics, as, as we discussed, coming out of DeepMind or, or or whatever else it may be. There's 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 going to be more big data sets in the future. Yeah, so I think that that is part of the point that data sets got very large, and so it's actually quite hard to move these data sets around, even if you were allowed to. Um, 
And similarly, computing has evolved. So it's easier to put your algorithm into a container and move that container to the place where the data is and run it there. Um, so this is evolution of computing standards and storage costs for very large data sets. You know, it's expensive. You actually don't want to have lots of different universities or companies all having to build very big storage facilities to hold data that maybe they're only going to analyze a small number of times. It's much more efficient to have it in a single place. And then you can do the security very carefully. Um, and you can also extend this into the cloud because the cloud providers have worked out how to do security where everything's encrypted and they can't look at the data either because you as the controller of the data hold the keys. So the security, five years ago, this probably wouldn't have been possible, but the security design has now sufficiently advanced where that's possible. And then that means that if you want to do some very sophisticated AI, for example, involving a lot of computers, you can actually do that in this sort of secure cloud framework. So Health Data Research UK is certainly you know, trying to coordinate and lead on the standardization. And so, in fact, we've published a green paper on trusted research environments. And that's, you know, the word TREs actually is being mentioned by quite a lot of different groups. NHS England, NHS Digital has been setting up a TRE um, as a way of, you know, allowing analysis across some of their summary health data sets in a secure way. I was going to say that that's, that that is a reassurance to know that there's so many safety steps um, at any point to 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 protect the data and the people. Um, but you were you were going to ask something, Ed? No, go on. I was. I was... <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bit of an awkward moment when we just. So who's who talks now? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, do you want to go to to next question five? I guess we kind of already asked about genome. Oh yes, but... yes, we can go to question five. Because um, you mentioned uh, Tim, you mentioned a little bit about uh, sequencing a, th- a hundred thousand genomes in the NHS and how that was a goal, and it was a goal that was met in two thousand eighteen. So you already said a little bit of uh, what what comes next. So so do you want to expand a bit on what's the next? Uh, goal and what's the idea now after that? So the Genomics England project was to sequence a hundred thousand genomes in the health service for clinical care, but also set things up in a way where those hundred thousand genomes could also be accessible in a secure environment to do research. Um, but the key point was to get to show, you know, demonstrate that it's worth sequencing, it's health effective to sequence whole genomes for a certain, for at least a subset of conditions. And so alongside the sequencing and providing individual reports that have gone back to the NHS for each of those patient, uh, patient families, uh, there's been a health economics analysis around, you know, what's the benefit in terms of healthcare um, for those families in terms of the NHS. And so Rare diseases and some cancers, it's been established that that's health effective. And so that's led to the NHS deciding, you know, this was 100,000 was a special project. This is now a permanent feature of the health service. Um, 
launched as the Genome Medicine Service, in many ways, it, it you know it sets up a single testing directory which includes you know the old tests, the original single gene tests which have existed, panel tests um, in the health service for different conditions, supplemented by whole genome sequencing where that's appropriate, um, where that has sufficient clinical value. And of course, as we expand our knowledge of interpreting genomes, the number of conditions where it's worth doing a whole genome sequence will increase. And so, you know, costs will go down, our experience will increase, and you'll see more and more people that have a stored genome. Because, of course, you sequence a genome, it's not like a normal test in the health service where you, know, you store the result in a record system and don't necessarily keep the data. A genome doesn't change during your lifetime. You're, you know, if you get cancer, the cancer genome is different, but your, your germline genome isn't going to change and so if you're ill for something else, you can go back and look at the genome from another point of view. If you've got a stored genome, potentially the GP systems could query that genome and see which drug is most likely to work for you, because we know quite a bit about pharmacogenomics, but we don't test for that because you wouldn't want to wait for a test result um, to decide, you know, A or B drug. We know these two drugs are perfectly safe. We just don't know which is optimal for you. But if you've got a stored genome, you can do that electronic lookup instantly. And so you can build that into the electronic health record system. So there's quite a lot of future engineering having got to this point. We've essentially, we're doing the low-hanging fruit to improve health service, but you can see quite a few other things. With our knowledge we have now, we can start plugging those systems together. And this is the first health system in the world that has deployed this. No other country has managed to do this so far, other than the UK. Um, I, I guess this is because, because as you said, it, it people could see this as they do this test once, and then uh, it's not like, as you said, a test that needs to be repeated. So, do you think it would be that one of the goals is to implement it um, and just do it for everyone, like a standard checkup test that you have to do when you get? Up and, uh, to a certain, I, I imagine a certain age, uh, you have to. Do you mean, do you, when you say test B, do you mean getting the genome the sequence? Genome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Secret. Yeah. Sorry. So the point is that at the moment, unless you're ill and we need to diagnose something and a genome is going to be helpful, we don't understand enough really to make it worthwhile. Um, because, you know, this is what these companies, uh, you know, providing tests for, you know, they're saying that they can give you some risk score, but it's just a risk score. And it's not, it's, we don't understand enough in most cases for that really to help your health. Um, so at the moment, we're, it's just being used in cases where we know it's health effective, rare diseases and some cancers. And that list will expand over time. Um, but we can't really do prediction, basically, at the well, moment. Well, it, it's interesting you say that, though, because it seems to me like, um, a, a, as you as you said, as you sort of preempted there, that we might be able to in the future. And this is something that it, it, if the project was a hundred thousand genomes of you know people in the UK, and it's still ongoing with more, um, it does seem like uh, what B was getting at there of eventually having everyone's genome you know everyone's readout of their dna on record there's there's got to be science that you can do there and you know 
as you've explained, there are there are you know safe you know uh, privacy preserving ways to do that science now. So do you, do you not see that eventually we we will get to that point where everyone's uh, everyone has their DNA sequenced at some point? I think it'll. I mean, it's it's all you know from a health service point of view. It's a question of you know when is it health when is it health effective to do that? What number of people and that you know the fraction of people where it's useful for their health will increase over time. But you know, it's actually building a system to handle hundred thousand genomes is quite challenging, and we are going to scale it up to a million over five years because there'll be half a million done in the health service. And there'll be half a million as the cohort UK Biobank, which is, that's a set of volunteers. So they're not going to get feedback individually because it's a volunteer cohort and it's a research cohort. It's not set up for clinical return, but it will be another half a million genomes. So we'll have a million in the UK. Uh, European Union's talking about doing a million across Europe. Um, they'll, you know, if we can work, we'll, you know, information information will get shared statistics will get shared between these different cohorts and that will gradually increase our knowledge um, and allow us to use it for more things and of course the protein you know being able to predict protein folding um, i think makes you know removes a massive bottleneck in our ability to interpret and to get useful information out of those those genomes yeah um I, I think the, the 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 way you've described it kind of makes sense because I I think we what B and I were imagining it was like you know well why not you know if we know it's going to be useful in the future why not have you know you, everyone you, you, yeah yeah why not have a you know government commitment to sequence everyone's genomes but actually what you're saying is to 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 advance the number of people who are who ha- are having their DNA sequence on a on on the basis of well, this cohort of people it would be useful to know for this learning about this particular disease and so on and so forth. We're going to get more and more done over time, and and if we, you know, we're focusing on the most important people to do that for first. So, and and given that it's not easy to just quickly do it for everyone now, that does make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, and it is you know cohorts cohorts for doing research problems, and then the testing directory to decide clinical reason for doing it so those you know people frequently ask the hundred thousand genomes you know what was the target of the research there wasn't a it wasn't designed it wasn't it wasn't a research study it was based on unmet clinical need the people who were the genome would most help had a higher highest chance of producing a useful diagnosis those are the ones that got sequenced so there was no bias across the whole country really in terms of access to this I was already thinking about all of the sci-fi options that we had and how far we are from them. <laughs> uh, and then and then that everyone could have like their fingerprint in the system and their genome and that would be but then I I do imagine that it would have to be such a big um storage for everyone's genome to be saved. Oh, there so. are, oh, that's one consideration that amongst <laughs> many, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, genomics are 20 petabytes for 100,000. You know, we're cruising at 60 petabytes now. Oh, so. Um, Sounds like no a biggie. lot. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's not a small amount of data. Okay, yeah, so I did have one related question there, which was, um, uh, I think I saw that uh, that there's a push from Genomics England to sequence um, genomes of people who have had COVID. Um, is, is that correct? Yeah, so that's a, that's a, 
obviously COVID has changed a lot of things. Um, that's affected Health Data Research UK. There's been a big focus about using these national data sets. Um, in fact, this is the first use of the NHS digital trusted research environment that's been around COVID. Um, Genomics England angle, of course, is genomes. And so it's part of a national alliance based out of Edinburgh um, to identify those patients who were most affected by COVID and similarly those who were infected and least affected and then sequence both of those and do comparisons. And so that's ongoing, um, in fact, because of the um, the early phase, you know, the, after lockdown, the numbers went down. Uh, actually, it was took a while to get enough patients, but the, that, that they're being sequenced. And the target is 35,000 whole genomes, uh, 20,000 most affected and 15,000 least affected. And, you know, and then that's also, the data is also being linked to international data sets because you just need large numbers to have the statistical power to find parts of the genome that are most of that are most significant yeah that, that it just it, interesting to point out i guess what's what's being thought of here because obviously most of our listeners will think well covid19 it's it's caused by a virus so, but what we're talking about i guess is people's susceptibility to having yeah people's susceptibility yeah, to having yep. the worst yep. case of the disease um if they did get infected um and what you've just said there is that you're taking people who have had it but there's one subpopulation of those people who had it really badly and the other being ones who, who didn't have it badly at all um, to see what the differences are. Cool. Which makes sense because um, even with the, the protein folding even can be helpful because what if the one way that one of the proteins folds and makes someone less susceptible to have a lot of um, um, symptoms rather than just just um well some so, some, yeah. some difference in in their their protein structures allows the virus to do to to infect better you know well so that's the spike protein and that's been one of the casp targets this year um and in fact there was a special subcategory of casp you know specifically for for covid um and of course the deep mind models have turned out to match very well to because there was obviously a rush to try and do X-ray crystallography on these as well, but not all of them have been crystallized. So I think the view is that now that people should start assuming the DeepMind models are correct um, in cases where there's no no X-ray structure. Wow, wow, that's uh, yeah, that's that's a vote of confidence, definitely. <laughs> and it can also help if if we can assume that it's correct. It's also imagine. Let's hope not, but there's other pandemic. And there's other emergency. Hopefully after this one ends and we have some years of peace. Uh, so because in that case, we wouldn't have to necessarily wait the entire time for the crystallography. We could just have a prediction and start working on um, solutions earlier, I suppose. Yes, exactly. So, you know, the, think of all the different pathogenic organisms that are out there where pharma is looking for targets to develop drugs. And one of the big costs is frequently, you know, where's my target? What's its structure? If you can take a genome, which of course is now very easy to sequence and predict all the structures, you're in a much better position to then, then, you know, work out where are the good targets. So it can revolutionize, particularly in those, you know, neglected diseases where 
um, you know, there isn't as much money, it should really help with that. And in fact, DeepMind have said that they would like to target some of those. The not so, not so cool diseases that have less less funding. <laughs> right. Well, well, that exactly that's important too. Um, yeah, just to to decode some of the the uh, the biology jargon I noticed you use there. So when when you when you're talking about targets, you're talking about the the proteins that are on a you know disease causing virus or bacteria that drug manufacturers might want to target with the drugs they develop. So it would be, you know, the drug in some way uh, interacts with that particular protein um, on the on the virus or, or bacteria. Yes, I mean, most drugs work on, on a protein target, not all by any means, but it's one of the classic. So if you know the pathway... Um, pathways within a particular organism, you try and target things that are critical to that particular organism with a drug that's going to knock some pathway out. And obviously you need the structure for that. And well, you can do screening, of course, high throughput screening of compounds, but it helps if you've got a structure as well. That, and that leads me on quite nicely to the next question, which is, um, as well as, um, sort of drugs for treatment, of course, one of the big things that's ongoing at the moment is, all of the developments of vaccines for COVID-19. And of course, as many people will have heard in the news, not just us, you know, people who have studied biology, people will be quite familiar with this now, that the way that um, that uh, uh, vaccines also work tends to be, you know, um, uh, inducing the, immu- the immune system to create antibodies, which themselves latch on to these targets which you call in that case you call them antigens um but um we've got multiple vaccines that appear to be effective in preventing the disease now that have been developed by lots of different uh, companies and in different countries um do you have any uh, opinions about um about all of this at the moment um and I, i'd be interested to hear if you have any thoughts on yeah the particular one that's being rolled out in the uk which is the Pfizer vaccine, which is is interesting to us as biologists because it's the first vaccine based on on um, RNA. Do you feel g- generally optimistic or pessimistic about where things are going? Yeah, I think I think I think that you know, for example, for a long time there've been unsuccessful attempts to develop vaccines against various things like AIDS, for example, um, and this time around. Um, there's been a coordinated effort worldwide. A lot of different techniques have been applied. Um, you know, in some ways, actually, you could say this is a bit like CASP, a coordinated effort um, with lots of different people trying different approaches. And some of those have turned out to be successful in, in you know, taken, um, you know, taken the science forward. Um, through this cumulative effort, this collective effort. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing to pick up on. So the thing that's impressed you most has been the the fact that it has been a sort of a natural competition, if you will, that lots of people have risen to the challenge. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I I felt impressed by the global scientific community. I mean, there's not been vaccines developed this fast before, so. No, exactly. And a lot of virologists were really quite pessimistic, saying, you know, we know this class of viruses, and we haven't had much luck previously with this class. And so 
you know, this push to, to do something has seemingly pushed the field forward, um, which is, you know, very, very encouraging, especially with the time scales. I mean, it's had all kinds of effects. You know, it's, it has, you know, there's been a real push in terms of sorting out some of the data things inside HDR UK or through the alliance that HDR UK has put together. And that's helped to drive, you know, some of the federation and, you know, enabling analysis that we'll be able to use in other settings later. Right. Yeah. So I, I think it is well, yeah, it, it's worth pointing out that it's, although the the people who, who we're most excited about in the news are the people who developed vaccines, but the data science community has sort of risen to the challenge of COVID-19 as well. <laughs> it's like the, the scientists everywhere are saying, no, we also did things. <laughs> um, all right. Okay. So, I, so I think uh, on that note, uh, Tim, it's a good point to to end with a, a bit of a bonus question, which uh, hopefully this is this is more in your area of of, of expertise than the last thing I asked. But uh, um, so it's a bit of an open ended one, um, but it's it's very relevant to everything we've been discussing so far. Um, just how many years or decades do you say would you say we are from being in the era of truly personalized medicine and i'll let you interpret that as you will so that's what i think i mean that is what genomics England's doing um it's you know people are affected by genetic conditions you know that's their you know their genome has affected their health and so one step away from that is um what other things can you do maybe preemptively now, it's complicated, you know, it's a very complicated system, and then there's environment as well. It's not all genetics by any means. But there clearly is some information in there um, that can be useful in terms of preemptively spotting problems. We just have to get better at interpreting it. And as I said, it, having all the proteins is going to help in that process. So... Um, you know, the, the most obvious cases are things like pharmacogenomics, where it does look like there's, there's some variant in around 80% of people, um, that we've sequenced so far that would affect, you know, how they react to some drug, which is fairly common. If you look at, I mean, it doesn't mean to say they'll ever be given that drug, but you can see, you can see enough patterns that if you had a genome, you could probably improve healthcare overall over the, population maybe avoid all of those like um allergic reactions side effects, guess, side effects and... yeah exactly and and you in terms of personalized medicine there is a community of health systems that have some sort of um genome medicine activity one of those is thailand because they have you know 10 percent of people have a particular um subtype of um immune system hla which gives a particularly severe reaction to skin condition. And so if you, you know, Stephen Johnson syndrome, that's very, very serious. If you treat that and you don't, didn't realize that they have that susceptibility can cause death. And so it's worth them testing before they give drugs in that context. Fantastic. So, so in other words, we're, we're kind of already in the, at least at the beginning of the personalized medicine era. (laughs) 
Yeah, the, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. I was going to say, <laughs> it's, it's, it's scary to think as well that this is what we know. Imagine what, what other things exist that are much more advanced that we don't know yet. So that's, that's just, you know, sci-fi. Sc- scary, but exciting. So yes, to think that all of- it's definitely exciting. It's definitely we don't exciting. have hover cars yet, but that I guess that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, we yeah, I think I think I'd rather I'd rather live in a world where we can have our genetic diseases and cancers treated than <laughs> than in the world of hover cars. But uh, exactly, hopefully we can exactly. have both. There's no reason why not. Um, <laughs> on that note, Tim, uh, thanks very much for uh, coming on the podcast. Um, before we let you go. Where can people find out more about your work and do you have social media that people can follow? So I'm on Twitter as TimJPH. Um, I actually do have a blog on Medium because, I mean, which literally I've only done a couple of posts, but one particularly around the AlphaGo DeepMind AI thing. Um, and of course, you can find me at King's um, on the websites there. Thank you. All right. Yeah, thanks very much. So thanks for having me. It's great. If you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Cheering Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstry, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jaminsun.bandcamp.com.